Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Writing is the superpower for researchers. Welcome to this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, where I'm joined by Greg Bernstein. Greg establishes user research practices for growing organizations and wrote Research Practice, Perspectives from UX Researchers in a Changing Field. He spends the days advocating for and practicing user-centered product development as lead user researcher for Webflow. He speaks around the world about his work at conferences and company events. Greg has built innovative research practices at Vox Media and MailChimp and taught design, branding, and typography at Georgia State University. In a previous life, he created album covers for punk and emo bands and designed for clients in the music and advertising industries. In this episode, we explore his journey from designing albums and posters to teaching to leading UX research and his experience as an author. It was an honor having Greg join me on the show. I want to thank him for his time and insights, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Greg, thanks so much for joining me today on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind for our guests, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Matt, and thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure I am Greg Bernstein. I am a user researcher. Uh, Now I can call myself an author now that I've published a book. Uh, I'm also a designer and a professor. All right. Yeah, thank you. A lot lot of different threads that I'm really interested in uh, pulling on uh, there. I want to talk about in general, maybe just start if we back up kind of your journey on how did you end up into in the design or design adjacent spaces? Yeah, so we're going way, way back to when I was an undergraduate uh, in college, and I had a lot of friends who were in bands, or they were putting out records, and I didn't have any musical ability, or not any that would warrant me recording music, but I still was part of the scene. I was still going to shows. I still wanted to be a part of that world, and um, I was studying advertising in college, and I realized that the part of advertising, the only part of advertising I liked was actually studying laying out ads. And that was my introduction to graphic design. Um, I started designing as much as I could. It was too late for me to switch majors, but I was able to kind of sit in on some design classes and get an unofficial minor in graphic design. And I realized that layout made sense to me. Uh, Copywriting made sense to me and combining those and, and creating, you know, layouts for bands and record companies became a viable career path. I also happened to go to school in Athens, Georgia, where REM is from. I worked in a print shop uh, after school and on the weekends, and REM's creative director used to come in to get big printouts made. This was way before desktop printers were affordable, and he would get these big prints made, and, and one day I just said to him, hey, I will be an intern for you. I'll work for free. I just want to learn how you do it. I have friends in bands. I want to learn how to make albums, how to make posters. And uh, he took me on as uh, a protege and uh, is a lifelong friend of mine. But that was my introduction to design was like, I, I knew I could do music packaging. I knew I could make merchandise and uh, I kind of found a way in. Oh, that's great. Thanks. Yeah. And um, you know, for me, when I was in, uh, in high school and through college, yeah, I, I, I just loved REM and so and Athens held a special place in my heart and I think both of us uh, worked at student radio stations as well in college. Yep I was a uh, DJ I started off you know doing the midnight to 3 a.m shift to kind of you know build my chops and then uh, yeah I did it for my entire senior year I was in the, the radio station all the time it was great. 
That's that's fantastic. My <laughs> my first shift was midnight to six a.m. Oh, wow. uh, sat- Saturday morning, so it was like a really really long Friday night. <laughs> and that's that's a lot of programming, uh, a lot of air to fill. <laughs> it yeah, it was. It was a great time. I mean, as a music nerd too, just bins and bins of records to to go through to to pick some stuff uh, out. But yeah, enjoyed those. Thinking about. REM, and this is through a, a romanticized lens, though, it, it, it's really exciting for me to hear that you got to work on and, and see some of the, those graphics close up, because I always thought there was a, a really interesting kind of design aesthetic that that the band presented, even, you know, from even the early kind of IRS days, and it, I felt yep. like it carried through on, on Warner Brother, but. Yeah, I, and that's, I'm really glad you brought that up, because it was a learning experience for me to see that REM's philosophy was the design should look organic. It shouldn't look like it was made by a machine. It should definitely look like it was handmade. And I was still um, trying to figure out what my aesthetic was, you know, what I wanted to do. And so I tried to adopt that style of organic design and I couldn't figure it out. It didn't make sense to me. Like to me, you, you use the machine and the machine's influence ends up appearing in the design. Uh, you create these digital artifacts. You you create patterns that you could only make using a computer. And so it took me a while to realize like that, that aesthetic works for REM. Uh, and it's really good to understand why it works and why they do that. But it also is not what works for me. And it doesn't really represent how I think about layout and design. So, um, but, but to your point, I got to watch how the designer, Chris Billheimer, who, who's still designing today, uh, and went on to create a, the entire aesthetic for Green Day, among other bands. Uh, he would take these printouts and lay them out in rainstorms to kind of see how rainstorms and you know cold weather would influence uh, a printout and make it look weathered. Not, and you could do that on a in Photoshop or whatever program you want to use. But he was actually using the rain to make things look weathered, and that really showed me how you can bring organic principles to uh, you know modern layout. Oh, that's. That's great. And uh, if when I was doing some research, getting ready for our interview too, I said, did you teach typography? I did. So uh, I designed album packaging and merchandise for bands and, and record companies for about 10 years. And I got super burned out on it because one thing it's, it was the same format every time. It's like, you know, there's the t-shirt and then there's the the seven inch and there's the 12 inch and then there's the CD. Like you, it was the same project every time. Uh, I also was not great at web design and I always, I never thought of myself as a web designer. So I kind of felt like my palette was limited. Bands don't usually make a ton of money. So it wasn't a lucrative way to uh, have a career. Uh, so I got burned out. I still loved design. I just didn't like doing what I was doing. And a friend of mine who was teaching at Georgia State University uh, said, hey, we we really need uh, an adjunct professor to come in uh, and teach a few courses for us. And it, it was exactly what the doctor ordered, right? It was still talking about design, still trying to figure out what problems we're trying to solve. Uh, and I got to teach like introduction to design principles, but also introduction to typography. And, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, like I never really studied design in college. So it was also a chance for me to really go deep on some gaps in my knowledge. And um, I understood intuitively about typography. I just didn't really understand all the principles that I had kind of absorbed. So for me, it was a a learning opportunity as well as a a great way to still be in the design community. So, and uh, you, you went to get your MFA at Savannah College of Art and Design. Are we allowed to say SCAD? Do people say SCAD or is that, do you? They still call it SCAD. All right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so that was two years after I did uh, the teaching at Georgia State University for two years. I thought, this is it. I want to do this for the rest of my life. I'm I'm in heaven here. Uh, but to be a real, you know, full-fledged uh, professor, you need the master's degree. Otherwise, you can't get a tenure track position. So I went to SCAD to get my master's degree. Uh, and it was great because then I really could go deep on all these gaps in my knowledge. I really had formal training now in design and typography. Uh, so it was, I did it backwards. You know, I went to, I did, I did practice, I did teaching, and then I went to school. 
but uh, I wouldn't have done it any other way. It was great because by the time I got to grad school, I, I knew what I wanted to do and, and what my gaps were. I love it. And I, I, I like uh, from a designer perspective and researcher, uh, in some ways, how you were able to deconstruct what was going on. So you you experienced it and then you were, you know, even <laughs> using the almost like observation, uh, ex- explanation, implication kind of vibe, you were able to look at what was going on, peel back, see some of the patterns or structure and then start to fill in some of those gaps. So I really do appreciate that perspective. It sounds so much more intentional when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and and we did our undergrad roughly the same time and thinking about the uh, the reputation that design has and UX in the in the broader business world now, nobody was using those terms when I was an undergrad, right? And I, I started out at focus more on broadcast and film, and I still mm-hmm. see a lot of a lot of similarities between what we call design now and the elements that I learned in broadcast and film from audience centered elements to, to a narrative, to progressive reveal. But there's no way I had that language as as an undergrad. I wasn't using those terms, nor was it intentional. Here's what I'm looking to do in this space. And, but it it is interesting reflecting back how some of that sticks with us. Even, you know, working with, bands and and singers and you know you have that initial meeting with them where you're trying to understand what they're going for like it maps perfectly to a research project where okay what are the goals here how are we going to know if we've been successful um what does the execution need to uh include and and how do we know if we got it right you know there's there's you're validating concepts you're you know you're evaluating the final uh, it's the research process, but I didn't I didn't know it at the time. Yeah, and I think too uh, some of what I appreciate about your work in the research space, and and we'll, we'll dig into your your book in a little bit here too. But the almost a way to operationalize that inherent curiosity. Like how does mm-hmm. how does this thing work? What's sitting behind it? What what are all of these potential drivers to help? And then and then the teaching side. Uh, I, I see a strong overlap uh, with you as teacher and as researcher. Again, here's the phenomena. Here's here's why this might be happening. And then also for for a product team, here are the implications. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I'm gonna call back to one of your previous guests, Aaron Walter, who hired me at Mailchimp after I finished graduate school, which is a, another story entirely. But he hired me to do research at MailChimp. And I really didn't make that, that connection between research and teaching until he was my manager because he had a similar path. And he really articulated for me, we need to understand this work so well that we can explain it to somebody who has no concept of it, who wasn't in the room, who you know has no idea what we're talking about. We need to be able to explain it so clearly to them, which means we have to know it in and out, you know, backwards and for- forwards. So that's what, you know, as professors, that's what we do. We have to be able to put a lesson plan together and really be prepared to answer any and all questions from students. And it's the same with with design research or, or any type of research. Thank you, yeah, and, and so two, two Iowa connections there. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, Aaron grew up at, and, uh, in Iowa and went to the University of Iowa, uh, but also your MFA, the, the MFA degree itself is a product of the University of Iowa. Again, all intentional, totally planned out. <laughs> so uh, when, you were, when you were at uh, Savannah College of Art and Design working on your MFA, do you mind sharing what some of the gaps were or what your kind of your educational interests were at that point? Yeah, so it was, it was kind of a weird menu of courses that I took because by that point, I felt comfortable with design principles. I felt like I had learned enough about typography uh, through having to teach it. Uh, I mean, I studied it deeply every night to come up with lesson plans. What I didn't understand very well was uh, business law, um, art law, um, marketing, accounting, finance. So all the things that you need to know to be a successful uh, designer or artist or in any field, you need to know how businesses work. These are the courses that I took as electives outside of my core classes. And they were just things that I thought I should know. 
and they, it seems like when else in my life am I going to have a chance to study these things and, and have the time to, to really absorb them. So I figured I'll take these courses. It'll be good to know. But what happened was when it came time to come up with my thesis project, it all came together in a way I didn't anticipate, which is if you recall the Apple um, iTunes installation process, which was way back in the day, there was always this window that would pop up with this huge uh, volume of terms of service and legal agreements. It was, it was like 3000 words in a tiny box. And it seemed like it was a, a ripe area for understanding why does it look like this? How can we make it better? How can we make it better while um, adhering to Apple's design aesthetic, the legal implications, the business needs, et cetera. And I was able to take all these weird electives that I'd, I'd randomly picked just because they seemed interesting and I should know them. And it all fed into this master's thesis project. Um, and that project was my introduction to user experience and UX research because in just studying the terms of service, I came across a book by Luke Robluski. Uh, he wrote a book called Designing Web Forms because uh, I was studying like how do people input information into a website. Uh, and it was like, oh, so this is the thing that I've actually been so interested in. I didn't even know there was a name for it, but it, user experience right. research. And uh, my master's thesis was about that whole area of terms of service and how to make them better. And that's what got me in the door at MailChimp uh, and made me deviate from becoming a professor and going into the world of UX. Are you still teaching today? Uh, I'm not right now. Um, I, I've been asked to return to the classroom a number of times. And it is such a commitment because you can't just show up and wing it. You know, you have to come up with lesson plans. You have to take people from the beginning of the quarter or the semester to the end and build upon lessons. And with a full-time job and a family, that's just not possible. So I said at the beginning of our call that I'm a professor. I still think I, I am a professor because I'm still looking for the lessons in my work that I can share through blog posts, through conference talks, uh, through the book I just published. But yeah. I do plan to return to the classroom at some point. I, I loved being in the classroom. I want to return. I still give guest lectures sometimes for different classes here in Athens, Georgia, but uh, I'm not employed currently as a professor. Yeah, and I, I hear this school year, I started adjuncting at the University of Iowa, teaching one course, uh, leading innovation. And so, you know, it is, it's just one course, but to your point, I think also uh, the designer uh, and iterator in me is like, what's the big arc? What are the things that I feel like students should really take away? And then also, where does this fit into other patterns that they might have? And what's, what are their mental models? And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I love it, but it is, it's a, it's a lot of work and even thinking through like, okay, I've architected the semester, but then even going back to each presentation and modifying it even after just the last presentation that we had. So, uh, yeah, it's yeah. An interesting journey there. Uh, want to talk to you too about your, about your book. Um, so, uh, where, where the, let's, two things I want to get at and I'll let yeah. you choose, choose where uh, you want to go is just from your perspective, uh, where did it come from and why would you want to take on such a, uh, a project? And the other thing I want to make sure we talk about is uh, you have a lovely introduction to your book and I want to talk about that story because I think it's incredibly insightful. So I don't know if you want to start on the uh, kind of the, Goliath task of taking on a book or the, uh, just the, the intro. <laughs> we'll start with the Goliath task. And the short answer to why I took on this task is I'm a moron and a glutton for punishment. Uh, no, that's, that's not yeah. true. I, um, I love to write first of all. And I realized, you know, I spent way too much time writing emails to clients. Um, I, I love talking about design and describing experiences. I spent way too long writing out my lectures for my students when I was teaching. Um, so writing, you know, it came, it's a skill that I developed later in life uh, or spent more time on later in life, but I love writing to begin with. Uh, I tried to blog about my work, whether it's 
on my own site or for whatever organization I'm working with. But I had given uh, a few conference talks about UX research. And one of those conference talks was just about the practical steps I took, um, mostly at Vox Media when I was leading research there, but also at MailChimp. Um, the practical steps I took to just build a practice. And the entire point was, you don't have to be precious about this. We're just trying to make better decisions. I don't care too much about sample sizes if it's a difference between no research or some research. Uh, and what happened was people would come up to me afterwards and say, that's, that's the angle I've been trying to take to introduce research to my organization. Or people would react on LinkedIn and send me messages saying, hey, I'm in a similar scenario. How can I at least go from no research to one project? So it felt like there was something there that was worth unpacking. And I started to write a book that was about my experiences at MailChimp and Vox Media. Uh, and once I had that book outlined, I realized the book would only be useful to people at MailChimp and Vox Media. It, it really wasn't applicable to many other use cases. It was good for people who were just starting out a research practice in a small to medium business. You're a team of one, people are open, but not sure where to start. Uh, I needed more perspective. And once I realized that I could make a book that would be useful to all researchers that reflected all perspectives or most perspectives, uh, I really understood where this book could go and how useful it could be, which is, here's where UX, UX research could take you. Here are the different career paths. This is where people come from. This is what it looks like in different organizations. And you know, this is what you'll be faced with. This is what's challenging. And you know, eventually this is where your career might end up. Uh, it just seemed like you know, we have books in the design community like that, like Mike Montero, I think another one of your guests, yeah, yeah. he wrote Design as a Job, which tells you how to be a designer. It doesn't tell you what to do in the design world, it tells, or it doesn't tell you how to design. It tells you how to be a designer. Um, Adrian Shaughnessy wrote How to Be a Graphic Designer Without Losing Your Soul, which tells you how to be a professional designer, how to run an office. And there's not a book like that for UX research. Um, so the more I thought about it and the more I kept iterating on it, I felt like there's a gap here. I love writing. I might as well be the one to do it. That's great. Yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate the, the book uh, and it, this obviously this will be repeat for folks that lis listen to the intro, but uh, it's research practice, and uh, I feel I feel like there is almost a double meaning to the word practice in there, uh, right? That it it is a practice as a, as a craft, but it also requires practice in the terms of rehearsal <laughs> to get better at it. Is that that's exactly fair? yes? You got the meaning of the title. Uh, I didn't want to point that out. I was just hoping yeah. it would be intuited by people. So I'm glad it came through. Yeah, no, it's, I, I like it. And as, as I said, there's, um, uh, so one of the things we also cover in the podcast is the notion of, of stories, right. And, mm -hmm. you know, being in Iowa city, you have to be tuned into stories, but, uh, you tell a very touching enlightening story in the intro. Uh, do you mind sharing that, uh, the setup for folks that, that haven't read the book yet? No, not at all. And this is also, this is from the very first conference talk I ever gave as a professional UX researcher, because it really informed how I thought about the role of the researcher. So uh, in 2013, my wife was diagnosed with uh, oral cancer, and it was not a cancer she was supposed to get as a healthy young woman. It was a cancer that usually strikes um, old men who have smoked all their lives. So mm -hmm. it was, it was out of the blue. Right. Um, we sought, uh, we sought feedback from doctors locally, but then we also traveled to the MD Anderson cancer center in Houston, Texas, because, uh, it has a reputation as being the best cancer treatment center in the world. Uh, and we figured, you know, what, this is not the time to, <laughs> to limit your options. And the contrast between what happened locally and what we saw in Houston was so stark uh, it was the right treatment and it was the right treatment because the doctor that we met walked into the waiting room and he, he had all the charts, he had all the labs, he had all the information in his hand, but he just pushed it aside and he said, Hey, tell me your story. Tell me, you know, everything. And that was a, a stumbling block for us because we didn't even know what that meant. And he said, you know, tell me your story. Tell me all about you. Uh, start at the beginning. 
So we spent two hours with him. And, it, and not once did he look at his watch or look at a clock, like he was invested in getting the story. So we told him about our kids. Uh, we told him about my wife being a psychologist. We told him about her vegetarian diet. Like we, we didn't speak to these things specifically, but like they came out organically in the process of telling the story. And then by the end of our session, he was able to reflect back a treatment plan that in, incorporated how we would address being parents how we would address her diet, um, how we would address mitigating the effects of radiation therapy on her ability to speak. Because if you can't speak, you can't really treat your psychology clients easily. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it would have been a, a stumbling block. So the way that he incorporated this, um, this listening, the reflection and the implementation of the treatment was really eye-opening for me, one, because it was just the best possible care and it, it was effective. She's cancer-free. So um, that, that speaks to the um, effectiveness of that course of action, but that's the job of the researcher, right? Like we are there, the stakes are lower in some fields. Like it's, I, I'm mm -hmm. not doing cancer research, but we're there to collect these stories and not just look at one question, but look at the big picture and, and really see all the information we can, we can take in to come up with solutions that meet the needs of the people we're serving. Uh, and it's, it's how Aaron Walter ran the team at MailChimp. It was never about, let's, let's change the login. It was always about um, how do we make login easier for these busy people who have 12 people who are logging into their account and they're sharing one password. And uh, you know we need to zoom out and understand where things fit into the bigger context. Uh, and I think Lisa Reichelt from Atlassian, she, uh, she tweeted out something, of, uh, I think it was an Eero Saarinen quote about, you know, we have to keep looking at things in the next bigger context. So a chair right, in right. a room, a room in a house, that's, that's the approach. So that's the story I shared in the introduction that we need to collect these stories and we need to just make sure we're not taking too narrow a perspective. We need to understand the entirety of what we're studying. Uh, and if I'm leaving out a part that you wanted me to address, let me know, but that's, no, that's kind this of the gist is of it. This is this is perfect, and I, I think a couple things that really stood out to me in, in your telling of that was one is having an oncologist say, "Tell me your story." Seems so out of context, right? From the way that we one usually, at least in the context of kind of U.S. healthcare, the way we interact with the doctor or specialist, that it is mm -hmm. almost always going to um, just like confirming your name, staring at the yep. chart, confirming, and so it was the humanistic approach. Uh, also, I appreciate yeah the, the notion of telling me your story and and in your uh, in the introduction too. I, what I really appreciated was uh, this doctor's uh, ability to synthesize and make the connections just just as you laid out. So so now that I understand the context in which you're working in, married professional kids, these all of these are, here are the things that we will want to take into consideration as we go down this path. And I just, so I thought, I, I thought that was great. And I um, love, absolutely love the positive outcome uh, for your family. Me too. <laughs> uh, and just really appreciative of um, that, that, that doctor's style, I guess, is it was uh, impressive. You know, and just to offer a contrast to, to you and to the listeners, the first doctor we saw, um, which I would say is a pretty typical experience, but his nursing staff sat us down and said, this is the type of cancer you have. This is what your treatment will look like. This is what post-treatment will look like. This is how it will be when you try to eat meals. And it was very, it was so narrowly scoped, it felt like we had no choice. Uh, it, was, it was very much putting us into a box uh, without regards to who we were or our situation. And so yeah. to go from that to what we then saw in Houston, it was just like, yeah, this is the way it should be. It, it's customized, it's appropriate, uh, and it, it, it connects all the dots between our life and the treatment that you, that's being prescribed. I feel like there are a lot of um, parallels or perhaps lessons in there that we could also take from just in general experience design, because that, that first first scenario laid out for, for you, like it sounded like here's the feature set and this is what you're going to do. And you are now like about to check the EULA on, exactly. <laughs> on this process rather than, you know, what are you looking to accomplish? Let's, let's, let's consider this and, and let's design an experience that is going to maximize 
good outcomes for what we need from science medicine side and what you need as a healthy, healthy, happy patient, right? Because we also know that, uh, right, just even patient attitude and disposition has a lot to do with uh, their acceptance and and even their their kind of, for lack of better terms, kind of going back to some of my high school coaches, but your positive <laughs> mental attitude really does affect performance. And so hearing those contrasts in, in it reminds me of the old days of like, what, what's this Microsoft product look like? Here's the features yeah. and legal ease. And what's this Apple thing? You know, this seems a little bit more inviting and warm. I think I might want to spend time over here. Yeah, designing for delight, uh, it still can't be beat, right? I mean, it's, it's a term that's been uh, overused, but whether it's healthcare uh, or software, yeah. there's something to be said for designing delightful experiences. And uh, I, I, I like that side of it, too, because, uh, you know, a, a general uh, kind of experience for me, pet peeve is uh, anytime that we're going in to talk with doctors, uh, it seems like you're you have to tell your story three or four different times. Yes. <laughs> and it's like they really don't know who you are. Uh, so the fact that somebody is sitting and, and listening just sounds very human. And, and there's a lot of infrastructure behind that, too, because any follow-up appointments we had, those doctors had information parity. They, it was not just that this doctor took the time to listen. It was noted and shared with the right people. Um, it didn't disappear into a folder never to be seen again. So we never had to repeat ourselves. We never had to feel like we were banging our head against the wall, like trying to get somebody to understand. The understanding had been distributed across the organization. Uh, so again, it, it's a model yep. for how research should work. No, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Want to go back to uh, maybe using typography as an example, but design in general. One of the things I'm always curious when I talk to other designers is when you look out at the world, I feel like it's hard to, it, it's hard to unsee bad design, uh, especially for me, like wayfinding or public spaces or, or direction and uh and, and then there's probably things that drive my wife nuts when I'm like, oh, that's pretty clever what they did there. Like you, you notice where something good has been done, but it, it seems sometimes like a curse. So I'm kind of curious on a typography standpoint, like when you look out at the, even a sign, do you, uh, do you either like, oh, well done, or are there like rage making things that you see just from a poorly constructed sign? I still, I'm a lot more tolerant than I used yeah. to be. Um, I think it's just, you know, as you get older, you, you, you're not quite as passionate about the things that really don't matter that much. Right. But when I see a logo that is not uh, readable, scalable, or legible, like if I see somebody's logo where I can't make heads or tails of it because I'm too far away from it, um, like that's, that's a rule, not a rule, but it's a lesson that I would teach my students. You know, your typography needs to be readable. You, the typography needs to be scalable. It needs to be, you know, once you make it small, once you make it big, it still needs to say the name of the place or the name of the thing and be uh, read. Yep. So, you know, readability, legibility, and scalability still, they really get at me when something fails to meet those expectations. Thank you. Uh, in, <laughs> In your craft, uh, and as like, and so now, like, my my mental model now is thinking more uh, as a UX researcher, but even even some of the other other design and UX work that you've done, I'm always curious on uh, talking to other creatives. Do you ever feel stuck, or and like, if you feel stuck either in a problem or some, how, what are your some of your techniques for getting unstuck? I mean, the best thing I do is walk away and stop working on it. Um, as soon as I, I like to go running. So if I'm out in the woods running, that's when I will find the answer to whatever has been blocking me. Um, I, or I just, I switch to a different uh, work stream entirely. So let's say I'm trying to think of how to run a usability test and it's getting difficult to think about the right way to structure it. I'll move on to an interview guide for some other project or you know the, the research plan. Um, I try to disengage different parts of my brain. So, you know, okay, this is strategic research and this is more evaluative research. Um, I'll switch gears so that I'm not stuck anymore. 
that's that's the best way I've I unstuck myself. Just change it up a little bit. Get away from. Yep. Uh, at at a certain point, it's diminishing returns. Spending your time staring at it, right? Yep. Um, and going back to just loving to write, I will. I'll sometimes send messages to other people about what I'm working on that I'm stuck on, not because I really want them to engage with me, but if I'm getting what's in my head that's blocking me in front of me in words, uh, it makes a little more sense. Yeah. So that's also a path towards kind of, you know, I guess unclogging the pipes. Thank you. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> and, and, and just as you were saying that, I, I, I was thinking about that, that power of, all right, let me, let me put it into words. Let me articulate it. And almost like a, another form of synthesis that let me go through the, okay. Oh, and sometimes you can look yeah. no wonder I was stuck, right? It's just as you're kind of almost reading it back to yourself, right? And, or it's almost like you can switch gears to like, you're presenting the problem and then you, mm -hmm. you react to it. It's like, oh, if somebody was bringing this to me, here's what I would tell them. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, one uh, another question I have for you, and and this is this is one I think for a lot of organizations where uh, I scratch my head at, and I think it's because we're we're so in it. Sometimes it's hard for us to read the label when we're inside the jar. But why is user centered <laughs> work and especially UX research? Why is it difficult for some companies to to grok to to see the value in? Because I, I, I've seen organizations that once they go through it and they start to see its potential, they're really bought in. And then it's like, oh, we should have been doing this all along, or this is a great investment. But if it's not, it feels like cost, it feels extra. What are some of your thoughts on why user-centered design and maybe specifically UX research seems so hard for some companies? I mean, there's a, there could be any number of reasons, but yeah. from what I've seen, it's either an organization is more focused on growth at all costs and to them growth is putting features in front of people or just doing whatever it takes to to get people to sign up um and sometimes you know there can be parts of a product that do have a great experience but then once somebody signs up they see that oh it's a nightmare when you get to some of these other screens um and the focus has always been on getting people to sign up because of some of the you know more polished areas of a product uh, the other thing I've seen is engineering-led organizations. Um, and that's that's not to say, uh, I'm not trying to disparage engineering, like products can't run without it. But yeah. I think if an engineer is in charge of an organization, you think of what are we going to ship? Um, did we ship the thing that we said we were going to ship? So it, it becomes very much a, a bunch of checks that you are trying to check off. Yeah. And design is not usually the most important thing it's did we launch that feature um whether it launches looking great whether it launches you know delightfully is irrelevant it's did we do the thing we said we were going to do uh, right. and and that can also make ux and ux research less important yeah yeah no and i uh, just as you're saying that i was hearing like it was a like a, a super cut of different voices in my past of the the, the uh uh, almost anti-design, we'll pretty it up later kind yeah. of mentality, right? And two things is one, it's for us, it's not, it's, it's not an element of pretty, right? right. It's, it's more, will this work and add value? And the other is, you know, you're never going to come back and fix that. Right. <laughs> it, if you say we'll fix it in, you know, we'll iterate on it later. We'll come yeah. back to it. It will never, ever, ever be revisited ever um, it will just live in a backlog and then that backlog will be deleted and nobody will ever speak of it again. I think what Basecamp is doing is really interesting. They don't have backlogs. They spend six weeks on a given, you know, they don't call it a sprint, but they have six weeks where they really focus on what they're going to do and they make sure that design is equally represented. Um, they're a very small organization. They don't, that's not going to work for everyone, but I like that. One of the, one of the things I wanted to follow up with you as well was when you and I first met, we were at a research conference in, in Canada mm -hmm. and you, you were giving a talk. I don't know if you remember the talk that you, 
you gave, or actually this was more in the work, it was more workshop-ish setting. It wasn't the, it wasn't the main talk because you, you gave two, but one of the things I really appreciate about your, your work is I remember you, uh, you kind of were wearing both your researcher and designer hat from my perspective, because you were, you were zooming out and, and trying to also show what other externalities might be uh, at play. And I thought that was really, really interesting and was just kind of curious if you don't mind kind of speaking to that, that perspective again of zooming out. I know we talked about, you know, just you're designing a chair for a room and that room is in a house and that house is in a city, but yeah. uh, a little bit more about kind of that taking, taking the, the, that bigger view and looking at some of the externalities that might be at play. The talk was called opportunistic research and I used the term opportunistic uh, intentionally, it has a negative connotation, but as researchers, you know, we're answering questions that are usually around a specific product line or a subset of a product line. As research leaders, though, we have the opportunity to do so much more. I feel like researchers in general are boxed into this role that could be so much greater. And, and I'm not the first one to say this, like Alec Levin, who organized the conference that we yeah. were that we met at has said this, and Matt Gallivan, who is now directing research at Slack, has mentioned this, but we, we're the ones who find answers. We're the ones who can give people the information they need to make better decisions. So why would we solely inform design decisions when we can also inform uh, company roadmaps, when mm -hmm. we can help mm -hmm. a board of directors figure out where uh, a corporation is going over the next three to six months or three to six years? Yep. So the point I made in that talk was the research we're doing, yes, we need to fulfill our duties to our teams, but it's up to us to also go to the next hallway and say, hey, marketing team, this is how I can work with you. Uh, hey, sales team, I have information that's going to help you, but also say, what information do you have that can help me? And really be that person who cross-pollinates knowledge uh, and, and tries to build a smarter organization. So I think I think that's the talk you're referring to. Yeah, no, and that's right. That's exactly right. The and the, it was the uh, that opportunistic side as well uh, for me to where you know, there there's strong overlap. Like you know, the intersection I like to play is is basically design or design thinking, innovation and brand strategy. And yeah, it's it's because there's so much richness in in those areas that are are outside of that main target. And to your point, as as an ethical uh, researcher, team player, we have to fulfill that, right? That's what we did. But there are so many other things that come up that we might understand, yes, this is what's happening. This is the phenomena that we're, but it's happening because of these things, or we've heard about these things. And that seems like that might get the, the user customer to their goal more quickly than even fixing what we're, we're talking about right here. And so I like that opportunistic side and also being able to take that lens. Uh, so in the complex adaptive space, right? Uh, a, a complex adaptive problem doesn't yield to previous best practices and where we get in trouble when we misdiagnose a tame or complicated problem, uh, it, but it's really complex. And so looking at those both from the, from the innovation uh, space and brand strategy, as well that I, I just think that opportunistic research is so important and for that to exist, what I is these trust building, relationship mm -hmm. building, uh, very human and humane things that need to happen within the organization to better understand uh, the outside world to make decisions and act. So I, yeah, I love that's, I, frankly, that's when I, I just really knew I needed to talk to you was when, <laughs> when we were going through, I love the talk as a whole, but the opportunistic research I just thought was, a really powerful thing and and it can be i don't know what do we want an accelerator uh for yeah. an organization it, it, it's like research on steroids if you're open to it, it uh, one i appreciate that you you wanted to speak to me based yeah. on, <laughs> on that talk but you know researchers and designers say they want to seat at the table right they want to uh be influential well how what better way to to get a seat at the table than to show um, here's how we can have a more successful business. Here's how we can increase revenue, increase growth, whatever it is we're, we're indexing on, you know, we have the answers as researchers. So you want to have a seat at the table, show value and show how you can answer those questions. Uh, and, you know, I, I got to work with our CEO at Vox Media, which to me, that was one of the best experiences I could have because 
research was helping shape company strategy. I was at the table. I was able to work with other leaders and it was, it was, I mean, personally fulfilling, but it was also validating for the role of research because here we were showing, you know, how better understanding the Vox media audience was uh, going to inform company strategy. Yeah, that, no, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, one of the final areas that I cover with guests is the notion of advice. Um, yeah. And it takes a couple different paths, could be you know, from um, mentorship or as I keep wanting to give Austin Cleon credit, even though his, his books steal like an artist, but I, I am stealing from him. Uh, but when we give advice, he says we're talking to our younger self. Uh, so I don't know, advice in your career, or, you know, I know you, you actually have just, you put out a book that has a lot of great advice <laughs> as well. So uh, your, your response could simply be just read my book. Uh, but what, what advice do you, you know, wish you might've had earlier in your career or what's advice that you have for, uh, designers and researchers? I'm going to give you a few different answers, if that's okay. That's um, perfect, start, yes. Starting with read my book, because um, <laughs> I invested a lot in it, so every sale uh, helps. Uh, <laughs> and I do want to give a shout out to my editor, Nicole Fenton, who um, they really helped make this book into what it is uh, and helped make it make sense. So uh, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Nicole while we were talking about the book, but yeah, that's great. Right, so one, read the book. Um, <laughs> two is practice writing, write as much as possible. Uh, I, I, it took me a while to find how much I enjoy writing and then find my voice. And the advice I had given to researchers who I've worked with was, you might not be a sports fan, but read the sports pages and just look at how a writer tells the story of a game that happened the night before and how they start with like the very basic information, you know, this team beat this team by a score of, you know, seven to three. And then as you read on, they add more and more detail, but it's just, it's a way of writing where you are putting the most important information at the top and then you kind of expand on the details later on. Uh, that's how research reports work. Right. Um, but I, I think if you can write good emails, good Slack messages, uh, a good slide deck, you know, takes practice to write a slide deck because you have to be able to speak with visuals next to you and think about how those two interact. Um, I think writing is the superpower for any, any discipline, but for researchers, uh, well, for anybody writing is just, it's a skill that never will let you down. So that's, that's the one bit of advice is whatever you're doing, whether you're a designer and you think you communicate visually, you still need to be able to write so you have those opportunities to communicate visually. Uh, the other advice that I got from my former manager at Vox Media, Mandy Brown, uh, she used to edit for a book apart and she worked with a lot of writers and a lot of speakers. And I was asking her in one of our one-on-ones about advice on thinking about ways I could write a book. This was way before I started this process, but she said, you know, the people who write books, they either talk about the thing that they've already done or they write about the thing they've already done so they can keep talking about it or they write about the thing that they are excited about and want to do so they can talk about that. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of one of those fork in the road moments. Like, do I want to write a book about what I've learned or do I want to think about where I want to go next in my career and just focus on that? Uh, and, it, and that's how I kind of think about lots of choices I make now. Like, is this, is this something that I am excited enough to focus on and turn this into another book or, you know, a new area of study for me? Uh, or do I want to keep going deep on the thing that I've been doing? So just that framework of how to decide, you know, is this something that I want to, do I want to keep talking about what I've done or do I want to, you know, is this new thing something I want to focus on going forward? That, that advice for how to think about, uh, things I'm looking at was really useful to me. Um, maybe that's only useful for people who give conference talks and write books, but uh, I found that advice really helpful. So I, I figure I should pass that along and uh, give credit to Mandy for that one. I appreciate that. I want to go back just a little bit to your, when you said writing, and I, I love that uh, exercise of uh, using using a sports story for an example, yeah. but uh, the, because uh, one of the things I was here, like taking a journalistic approach 
starts with a framing headline. And then, like you said, some really important information, but uh, it's one of the things I even work with with my students in the innovation class. Even if we have a short homework assignment and it's just a few bullet points, the power of a label that just organizes that because then mm -hmm. the reader doesn't have to, why, do, why are they putting all these different points here? Oh, these points all support this frame. Yep. It, it was early in my design career. There was an exercise where some, uh, it you had to read the instructions for doing laundry and it was really hard to understand. But, uh, and then when the label doing the laundry was just put on top of it, it's like, Oh, bank, bank, bank. Yep. That makes sense. So, uh, I, but I love that idea too. I mean, you've used it a, a couple times here of either writing for yourself or, mm -hmm. or when writing for others, but working on crafting, the way you think about things and then how you can tell that story and then how you can do it concisely, right? Like yeah. if I only have your, your executive summary <laughs> attention, yep. right? In a research report, here's what I need you to take away. And I hope this yeah. is compelling enough yeah. that you might want to find out a little bit more uh, that sits behind it. One of the stories in the book is about how I wrote this really lengthy overly lengthy research report and I shared it with my CEO and I saw his avatar appear in Google Docs and disappear seven seconds later. Um, and so from then on, every research report was a few bullet points at the top where even if you just clicked preview in Google Drive and, and opened up the preview, you'd still get the gist of the report. I'm now in an organization that doesn't use Google Drive, so I have to rethink my whole bag of tricks, but right, right. that was... That was my lesson to other researchers I worked with. Um, if somebody clicks preview, will they get enough out of this to, to really understand the study? That's great. Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to have you here. I always love it when we get to talk shop. So I appreciated the time today. Uh, thank you, Matt. And um, for listeners at home, this is the same conversation Matt and I would have, whether there was recording here around us or not. Um, this is just how researchers sound when they talk. It's super nerdy and super deep and uh, always a good time. Uh, I absolutely love nerding out on, on research. <laughs>